Hello and welcome to another episode of Damn Interesting Week. We are so glad you've decided to join us. My name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Weisberg Chen. I'm Bradley Calhoun. And this was a Damn Interesting Week. So let's get started with our first link. First link. All right. We've been hearing a lot about this new movie that's coming out. This is not SpawnCon, by the way, but Cocaine Bear. It's been making <gasps> a lot of headlines. Yes. Okay. Today from Discover, we're going to talk about cocaine tobacco because, yes, scientists have made cocaine from a tobacco plant. Why would you want to do that? That's <laughs> such a bad idea. To make cocaine more addictive. <laughs> well, a little bit of the opposite, but how they came about to do this oh. was a little roundabout. So they did, in fact, make a biochemical synthesis of cocaine using tobacco, but it was in order to solve a century-long mystery and yeah, we joke about cocaine because it's mostly notoriously known as a dangerous or, you know, illegal drug. Mm -hmm. But it is also used in a legal capacity as a local anesthetic for surgeries, mm. which today I learned. <laughs> so scientists have attempted to determine how exactly the coca plant, which is native to Western South Africa, biosynthesizes cocaine for at least a century. So like, we've known that it comes from a plant, but we just don't know how exactly it does this. Huh. So in order to learn more about the process, they basically had to reverse engineer cocaine by tinkering with the genes in another plant. Hmm. And this is where our little tobacco plant comes in. Why do this? Well, quote, scientific curiosity and interest motivated us to do this in the first place. And gobs I mean, of money. Like, <laughs> what? <laughs> <laughs> well, hold on. It's not like you're going to start seeing extra warnings on your cigarette packs anytime soon. For starters, the type of tobacco plant they used is a relative of tobacco that's native to Australia. We call it Nicotiana benthamiana. So it's not the kind that's usually grown at industrial scale to make cigarettes. And genes in this tobacco plant are specifically easy to manipulate. For example, previously a Canadian company was genetically modifying the same Nicotiana benthamiana to quickly produce particles they were using to develop a vaccine for COVID-19. So it's more like, hmm. hey, this particular tobacco plant is super hackable. And once they found these candidate genes and inserted them into this hyper-hackable tobacco plant, yeah, they created a small amount of cocaine. And just to reiterate, the subhead following that is limited amount of cocaine produced. Right. They want, they want <laughs> to let you know real hard, like, this is not the next Breaking Bad for aspiring botanists. So <laughs> the researcher said, quote, this reconstruction of cocaine and tobacco means nothing because cocaine production via this method is super low mm. and this ability is not retained in the next generation of tobacco. So they cannot pass along the trade, oh. which means why bother, okay. right? But this research, however marginal it sounds, there is another upside. If we can learn more about the drug and its production, researchers might have a way to create a less addictive variety of cocaine that still has its anesthetic properties that are useful in medicine. Mm -hmm. It's like the O'Doul's of cocaine. <laughs> <laughs> 
Oh man, that sounds like a really good comedy sketch that would make a lot of people really angry. <laughs> right, yeah, probably. <laughs> Next link. Next link. This article comes to us from bbc.com and it's titled Whiskey Fungus Lawsuit Forces Jack Daniels to Halt Building Project. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So, continuing along the theme of uh, vices and their derivatives, uh, a Jack Daniels building project is to be halted after a neighbor argued she was facing a plague of whiskey fungus caused by escaping alcohol vapors. Oh, jeez. Yeah. Hmm. Christy Long of Lincoln County, Tennessee, claimed her property was coated in the fungus, which appears as a black crust on surfaces. Yeah, gnarly. It is a growing (laughs) issue for people in the area, her lawyer told BBC News. The fungus, which consumes ethanol fumes, grows on surfaces near bakeries and distilleries around the world, which I had no idea. That's pretty wild. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mrs. Long, who runs an events venue next to several Jack Daniels warehouses, including one under construction, says the invading fungus has required her to spend thousands on power washing. She is suing the local county zoning office, arguing it did not properly approve permits for the warehouses. Some infuriated locals are now calling for Jack Daniels Tennessee Whiskey, which is owned by Louisville-based company Brown Foreman, to install air filters to combat the problem. Hmm. Jason Holman, a lawyer representing Mrs. Long, says whiskey companies often speak about the evaporation process, dubbed the angel's share, without mentioning (laughs) the resulting gold that comes with it. It's like pour one out for the homies, except upwards. (laughs) Yeah, but also the little homies on the ground are still getting a little too. That's right, yeah. In a court order, Lincoln County Chancellor J.B. Cox instructed Lincoln County zoning officials to order construction to be halted after he ruled that the permitting process was never fully completed. Hmm. And there is a photo of this fungus shown growing on a swing set, (gasps) and you can tell that the poles for the swing set are completely black with only (gasps) some specks of white peering through. But, you know, uh, she is an event coordinator. How is she not pivoting this into, like, come visit the Upside Down, partnering with (laughs) Stranger Things, or, like, haunted houses, right? Can't imagine that's healthy to breathe all the time. Yeah, I mean, it's still a fungus. Yeah, Yeah. at the very least, if you have mold allergies, that's not going to be good. Yeah. Brown Foreman spokeswoman Elizabeth Conway told the Lexington Herald Leader newspaper, we respect the chancellor's ruling and look forward to working with Lincoln County on updated permits. The Jack Daniel Distillery will continue to comply with regulations and industry standards regarding the design, construction, and permitting of our barrel houses in Lincoln Co. Blah, 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 blah. Legal speak, PR. Sure. (laughs) We're happy to have been slapped with this lawsuit. It's a privilege. Yeah. So the fungus itself is named Baldonia compniacensis, and it's named after the director of the French Distillers Association that discovered it, which is kind of funny that they named the fungus after the guy who probably was in big part responsible for bringing it. And I don't know if that's like a compliment, an accolade or (laughs) what. Like Lou Gehrig's disease. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks, Mm. yeah. It's led to complaints and lawsuits from Scotland to Canada and the Caribbean. Federal agents in Tennessee used to look for the fungus as a sign that illegal alcohol moonshine was being made nearby. Hmm. According to the Herald Leader, residents in at least three other counties have fought distillery expansions, arguing that the fungus would harm property values. Oh, I don't think there's any doubt about that. It surely would. Yeah. And, you know, I like how they're like, it's not about the health, it's about the property value. Well, true. Money yeah. is what makes all this stuff move, <laughs> oh, right? This America. So. We know what matters. Yeah. yeah. Next link. Next, Next link. link. 
Okay, this comes from New Scientist. Ford Patton's car that can repossess itself and drive back to the showroom. Oh, dear. Yeah, it was only a matter of time. Right, right, right. <laughs> so this patent was filed in 2021, but was just approved last week. Their justification? They're concerned about the safety of the people. Well, I'm sorry, I didn't finish that. They're concerned about the safety of the people who do repossession. Sure. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> Right. Granted, I, I get it can be a super difficult and dangerous job with all the crazies out there and loose mm-hmm. gun laws, but there's got to be a better way than this. <laughs> so here's how the system works. First, the owner gets a message on their screen or phone informing them of their mispayments and that their family is leaving for somebody more successful and better looking. <laughs> can you imagine being in the car when that message pops up? Like, as a passenger? <laughs> oh, yeah. And the, the kids see it. Yeah, that's a big deal. Everyone will know. You can't hide these things from your family anymore. Right. Because it's also at this point that some other measures could be made to, uh, let's say, stress the urgency of the owner's payment. Oh, no. Uh, yeah, these include things that may make the car unpleasant to drive or make it impossible <laughs> to drive what? or even return itself to the lender. But that last one is only if your car's worth it. If the math works out and your car is worth less than the payments, which, let's be honest, most cars are that way, it'll just drive itself to the wrecker. Wow. Uh So it's done. Like, even if you make the payments, you can't get it back because it's been crushed. Yeah, likely. Wow. So what are these things that will be integrated into the car that make it, quote, unpleasant to drive? Yeah. (laughs) They could have the car just start making awful beeping sounds every time (gasps) you get in. Wow. Mm-hmm. That's a good one. It can disable the GPS or play music that you really hate really loud. Oh, wow. <laughs> They'll baby shark you out of the car. Wow. <laughs> baby shark just over and over and over again. Uh-huh. Or it could even shut off the AC, they said, in what <gasps> they describe as, quote, a certain level of discomfort. Though, if you're in the South. Yeah, that's deadly in some cases. Yeah. You can't do that. It can also limit your access by locking the doors and shutting off the engine. Except, of course, during your work hours so that you can still pay the bill. My God. Like, how do they know Mm -hmm. when you work? That's insane. Here's the thing. I'm okay (laughs) with it, like, repossessing himself. I'm like, look, you didn't make the payments. Some person was going to repossess it. Now it just repossesses itself. All right. To make the person uncomfortable because they're late on their payments, that's really dystopian. Hello, beeping and music. I mean, we're already using that in Guantanamo. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, it puts your chair into a stress position. <laughs> oh, gosh. <laughs> oh. Driving. They're just like little stink bombs. They make the car smell really bad all the time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And it could also limit where you go by creating what they call a geofence oh, using the car's God. GPS. And the, the article goes on to say, hey, don't worry about any of this because it's an elusive goal that we're really far away from uh-huh. self-driving cars. And Ford even gave up on its goal developing a full self-driving tech Apparently losing $2.7 billion in the process. Ooh. There was a security expert they interviewed, Alan Woodward at the University of Surrey, says it would be a brave vehicle manufacturer that builds this into their vehicles as standard. Yeah. I disagree. Uh, well, uh, brave I say is- they wouldn't have to be so brave. And yeah. my guess is that rental car companies mm. will kind of start integrating this. And I could see this eventually moving its way into, say, home rentals or mortgages, right? It locks you out of your house if you miss a payment. Yep. Or mm-hmm. Imagine if you had to pay monthly for your shoes. <laughs> oh. so Subscription-based. Uh, well, they probably wouldn't do it by the month, right? They'd like you charged by distance, like, per foot traveled. All right, I'm going to call it on that. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like somebody's angling for a job in PR is what I'm hearing. Like, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Next link. 
Next link. All right. Well, this next article is from Scientific American, and it's called The Most Boring Number in the World is dot, dot, dot. And I'm not going to ask if you have any guesses because you're definitely not going to guess it. But <laughs> yes, according to research, there really are numbers that are quantifiably more boring than others. And Aww. it turns out a mathematician named Philippe Guglielmetti has devoted a significant amount of time to figuring out the pattern of why. So we start off with a cute little anecdote, well, kind of cute, kind of infuriating, about two mathematicians in the early 1900s. One of them, Srinivasa Ramanujan, was sick in the hospital, and his friend, Godfrey Harold Hardy, came to visit him. And when Hardy got there, he noted that he had ridden to the hospital in cab number 1729, which he was worried might be a bad omen for Ramanujan's health because it was a boring number and not some cool prime number or something. But Ramanujan immediately said, oh, no, 1729 is a very interesting number because it's the smallest number expressible as a sum of two cubes in two different ways. Mm. Yeah. So obviously Ramanujan was a giant nerd. But the story <laughs> does sort of illustrate the question of, OK, does every number have something, quote, interesting about it if you dig deep enough? Or are there numbers that are really just completely boring? And this is what Guglielmetti has been studying. But in order to do it, he needed the work of a mathematician named Neil Sloan. So Sloan's work started in 1963 when he was working on his doctoral thesis and had to calculate out a series of numbers from a moderately complicated algorithm. And it definitely wasn't impossible. He could continue to do the math if he had to. But on the other hand, the numbers were getting pretty big pretty fast. And he was like, surely someone else has already listed this out somewhere. Unfortunately, it turned out no one had. So about 10 years later, Sloan published a handbook of integer sequences, which contained about 2,400 common number series that other scientists could use to speed up their calculations. And it was immediately a huge hit. According to one fan, there's the Old Testament, the New Testament, and the handbook of integer sequences. <laughs> <laughs> so the book continued to grow, new editions came out, and in 1996, the whole thing went online, which meant they no longer had to judge whether a series was potentially useful or not. They could just list them all. So today, the list contains more than 360,000 entries. And some of them are things you would recognize, like the powers of two or the sums of cubes like Ramanujan was talking about or the Fibonacci series. Others, though, are more exotic, like the number of ways you can build a stable tower out of a given number of two by four studded Lego bricks. <laughs> but because the list is now so big and comprehensive, Guglielmetti realized that he could give every number a score based on how many times it appeared in the index and potentially find numbers that didn't appear in any series and were thus the most boring. And it turns out that the smallest number that doesn't appear even once is 20,067, which the article has therefore deemed to be the most boring number. <laughs> Wait, okay, say it again. 20,067. I mean, I think it speaks for something that you just missed it, right? Right, you're just like, what, what number was that? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so by comparison, Hardy's cab number, 1729, appears 918 times in the list. It also, by the way, is frequently referenced in the TV show Futurama, because one of the writers was a former math researcher named Ken Keeler, and he deliberately slipped it in whenever he could as an homage to Ramanujan. Uh. But once he'd gone and given every number a score, Guglielmetti discovered a pattern that he wasn't expecting. 
Lower numbers in general all tend to be very interesting, but as you count upward, there's a distinct split where numbers start to divide into very interesting or very boring with no middle ground. And he called this missing middle ground Sloan's Gap after Neil Sloan. The thing about Sloan's Gap, though, is that mathematically it shouldn't exist. And the proof for that is super complicated. You're welcome to check it out in the article if you want. But ultimately, the conclusion that Guglielmetti and some others came to is that the gap is a sort of visual representation of the human definition of interesting. Because if, for example, you were to create a list of all the numbers that don't appear in the index, that in itself would be a series that someone could enter into the index, thus making them no longer (laughs) worthy of being on the boring list. So actually, they say, no numbers are boring. There's only us boring people who haven't thought up a reason why every number is cool yet. Oh, there are no small parts, only small actors. Exactly. Small mathematicians. (laughs) (laughs) Next link. Next link. The Guardian has a beautiful, and I do recommend that you look it up online because the images are worth it. Beauty breeds obsession, the fight to save orchids from a lethal black market. Mm. Ooh, la la. And specifically, this is a little behind the scenes write up of the 20th orchid show at the New York Botanical Garden because they tend to rescue endangered plants quite a bit. Hmm. So orchids are kind of a fascination. They have a peculiar place in our collective imagination. For one thing, they're super diverse. There are thought to be about 30,000 different species of orchids. Hmm. And they're also really vulnerable when it comes to their environment. For example, the sixth Duke of Devonshire, he built an acre of glass houses to hold his collection. The musical artist formerly known as Prince, he had an orchid grotto on Hmm. his estate, which I guess in Michigan... That would require some pretty fancy environmental controls. Even the designer Halston in the 70s, he would send orchids and cocaine to friends for their birthdays. (laughs) So there's the tie-in to my first article. Nice. So orchids are a billion-dollar business. And anytime you get into a commodity that desirable, you're going to have a dark side, specifically Mm -hmm. a black market. And in fact, and I didn't know this until this article... When trafficked plants are seized by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, they are sent to botanical gardens like the New York Botanical Garden to get restored back to health. So they don't always immediately like destroy, put it in the incinerator. Right, right. right. It's like the cocaine when they seize that under RICO guidelines. Somehow it disappears. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. We got to splice it into something else. Just Mm -hmm. carry on the cycle. Let's see. So the director of Glasshouse Horticulture, Mark Hachadurian, says everyone hears Rescue Center and they imagine an emergency room with beeping monitors and IV bags. (laughs) But, you know, when it comes to greenhouses, (laughs) they've got, for example, right now in the articles writing a tangled fat green rope of a vanilla orchid. A messy dendrobium that arrived in the 1970s because, Mm. hey, some orchids can live to be 100 years old. Wow. They even had a Phalaenopsis shilleriana that arrived as part of a 2005 shipment of over a thousand orchids from the Philippines that got seized in Miami. So these plants come in all ratty and tortured with bare roots on the verge of death. They then get inspected for pests and diseases. And then the team rebuilds the root systems, they rehydrate them, they rehome them in the right habitat. So the import and export of endangered plants, it is regulated by the Convention on International Trade in Endangered Species of Wild Flora and Fauna. 
And when it comes <laughs> to these sites registered plants, orchids account for over 70%. And yeah, mm. most can be traded internationally if you've got a permit. But for the rarest and most endangered and therefore probably most expensive, the commercial trade in wild species is illegal. In some cases, you'll get an illegal plant smuggled in with a batch of legal ones that do have the right paperwork. So it's just kind of a little stowaway. Mm -hmm. In others, people will just take endangered plants from the wild and rustle them across borders in suitcases or in one memorable case. By tying stockings containing 947 succulents to their body. Wow. <laughs> That's a lot of cactuses under your shirt, man. It like... is. Like a lot of little lumpy bits and pieces. <laughs> That's That's a bold smuggling yeah. operation. But most of the time, it's kind of boring. Illegal plants are just sent in the post. Mm. So they've got this international regulation body, but enforcement, plant trafficking is not always a priority, sure. especially when it comes to things like orchids, which are definitely less of a concern than narcotics like right. cocaine-produced tobacco plants, right. right? And they call this phenomenon plant blindness. This is a tendency to see plants as a sort of wallpaper or the backdrop to a kind of livelier animal world. Mm -hmm. And that blindness allows the illegal plant trade to proliferate. And because a lot of these prized plants are very slow growing, you know, people will pay top dollar for something that's a little bit more mature. So culturally, there may be something at play here because Orchids in particular have a deep-rooted, pun intended, cultural obsession. Orchids captivated Confucius and the ancient Greeks alike, but it wasn't until the 19th century that a love for orchids went into like a full-blown mania. And this takes us to Victorian Britain in particular, where collecting orchids was an aristocratic pastime, in part because of things we've talked about, right? It requires an expensive hothouse, there has to be a person to go into the tropics to rip them from their natural habitat before we had Facebook Live and, mm. you know, worldwide shipping. So Jim Endersby, a historian of science at the University of Sussex, posits orchid collecting was part of the fantasy of empire. Mm. Woke as hell? No, I think this has a little bit of legs. Because listen, orchids grew in distant jungles, which was this pretend space in the imaginations of Europeans who associate mm. it with, you know, the steamy heat is erotic in a way, but the dangers <laughs> of the jungle, the poisonous animals, the headhunting cannibals, all these other fantasies that Europeans tend to indulge in. Mm -hmm. You've taken part in the adventure of conquest and exploitation and all those other little delightful things about empire, right? <laughs> so one assumes there's orchids in the British Museum then, right? Like, <laughs> they oh. have to be. Oh, mm -hmm. not only that, the best known orchid seller was Frederick Sander, who sent orchid hunters around the world collecting. He was known as the Orchid King. And yeah, some of the orchids in the New York Botanical Gardens collection originate from his nursery wow. in St. Albans, England. Yeah, big freaking deal. So, you know, you see them in grocery stores, you see them in like architectural digests, they kind of are everywhere. But Look a little bit closer. They are a little bit underappreciated by everyone and overappreciated by a raving few. <laughs> <laughs> I'm picturing a uh, Gary Larson drawing with a man in a large trench coat selling orchids out of his <laughs> right, coat. Right, out of his coat. In an alleyway. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I really like the image of the orchid in like the ICU with the little IV veins. And it's like... <laughs> I'm not going to make it. And he's like, I mean, you're going to live. We're going to put you in a garden. So dramatic. They really yeah. can be. 
Next link. Next link. This article comes to us from theguardian.com and are sticking on the plant theme. <laughs> Svalbard's mysterious doomsday seed vault offers glimpse inside with virtual tour. Ooh. Ooh. Yeah. So clearly we all want to go see this now. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Jutting out of the permafrost on a mountainside on Spitsbergen in the Svalbard archipelago, the entrance to the world's Doomsday Seed Vault is worthy of any James Bond movie. And that's Doomsday in uh, quotes, by the way. Uh, (laughs) Surrounded by snow, ice, and the occasional polar bear, the facility houses 1.2 million seed samples from every corner of the planet as an insurance policy against catastrophe. The global seed vault in the Norwegian Arctic, which opened in 2008, is closed to the public and shrouded in mystery, the subject of numerous internet doomsday conspiracy theories. Now, to celebrate the vault's 15th anniversary, everyone is invited on a virtual tour to see inside the vast collection of tubers, rice, grains, and other seeds buried deep in the mountain behind five sets of metal doors. And there is a link in this article, so if you want to go check it out, you can find it. I'm so glad to hear that there are five metal doors, because the only thing I can think of is, this sounds like a giant refrigeration vault for seeds, right? Mm -hmm. It's super cold, Basically, yeah. Yeah, but if climate change warms everything, like... not cold anymore. A, yeah, if, I mean, like, if we get into, like, fertile land conditions surrounding that seed bank, it's nice to know those metal doors are there so it doesn't just, like, explode into, like, every plant that's ever been is now taking root <laughs> right here. <laughs> yeah. I'm also picturing the entryway into get short. No, get smart. Get smart. The ones that... <laughs> yeah. The door, yeah, the sliding door, that's probably or MST3K. an older reference mm-hmm. for everybody. MST3K. Yeah, yeah. There we go. That's, yeah, that's yeah. more modern. Yeah. <laughs> So the deep freeze designed to last forever is co-managed by the Norwegian government, the Crop Trust, and Nordgen, the gene bank of the Nordic countries. And it opens three times a year to accept new deposits from other seed banks around the world. Lise Licky Steffensen, executive director of Nordgen, says it is a bit like being in a cathedral. It has high ceilings, and when you're standing inside the mountain, there's hardly any sound. All you Hmm. can hear is yourself. When you open the door to the collections, it's minus 18 Celsius, the international standard for conserving seeds, which is very, very cold. Mm. After the Aleppo seed bank was destroyed in the Syrian civil war, the vault was used to replenish seeds for the first time by the International Center for Agriculture Research in the Dry Areas, a regional hub based in Aleppo to study crops from the cradle of civilization where agriculture first began. Away from the panoramic view of the Arctic night from the vault's entrance, the virtual tour takes you down a long tunnel deep into the mountain. Eventually, you arrive at the cathedral, home to the three seed chambers, each of which can store nearly 3,000 seed boxes. Hmm. Each species is sealed in an aluminum airtight bag and kept in its country's box. In theory, the seeds are safe, although the entrance to the facility flooded with meltwater in 2017 after a heat wave in Svalbard. The island is the most rapidly warming part of the planet, but experts say the deposits are buried so deep in the permafrost that they will be safe for centuries. Hmm. Seeds are replaced every few decades, and if the cooling system ever failed, it would probably take hundreds of years for the temperature inside the vaults to rise above zero, which is really impressive. Yeah. This week, the vault welcomed first-time deposits from Albania, Croatia, North Macedonia, and Benin alongside wild strawberry varieties from a German research institute. 
And this thing really is very remote. You know, you can see the entrance. It's kind of this rising entrance just coming out of the snow. Hmm. And it's hard to gauge the size, but it looks roughly 20 to 30 feet tall. There's some decorative plants in a glass pane at the top to let you know you've made it. (laughs) So yeah, now you can look at the inside. I'm assuming the room with all of the alien DNA is not available for the tour. (laughs) Probably yeah, not. I think no. they have that yeah, locked they, up. They still. don't. They lock that off. Okay. Yeah, this is just yeah. the seed library, but the fungal library. I don't even think that could be contained. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, and you got to think about like, okay, this thing's for you know post-apocalyptic reseeding the planet. But what happens if we lose the information? Right, you still got the seeds, but now you have hundreds of thousands of seeds, and you don't know what grows what. There's a lot of experimentation that's going to have like, let's find out. Is this a fruit? Is it a grain? Is it a fungus? Do we know? <laughs> yeah. I did wonder about, you know, what happens in a scenario where there is some sort of major climate disaster and infrastructure and transportation is shut down. What if you can't get the seeds out of this place? You know, that's very, very remote. But then again, maybe in this sort of scenario, they're talking about this being the new cradle of agriculture post whatever. Right. But I'm glad we have it at least. As long as yeah. it doesn't end up getting <laughs> sucked back into Earth due to a volcano, like, subsuming it and melting <laughs> oh. it all into magma. Wouldn't that be sad? The whole thing just, like, drops down into lava and you're you like, know, oh. I'm a big fan of diversification. <laughs> it's probably my financial planning training, but, like, a right, single right. consolidated source of every seed, like, it needs to be decentralized. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Next link. Next link. From Piltdown Man to Anti-Vaxxers, what science's worst hoaxes can teach us? Mm. I want to be very careful with this story, though, because it Mm. could lead to some potentially crappy conclusions. So let's go back to 1912. British scientists have been on a desperate hunt for a missing link. Because at this time, French archaeologists had discovered Cro-Magnons. And the Germans had Neanderthals. The Brits had nothing. (laughs) That is until Piltdown Man. Shards of a skull were unearthed in a gravel pit near Piltdown in East Sussex. And coincidentally, it was just what they were looking for. Hey. The British had their missing link of their mm. own. <laughs> and because of the huge demand to have a British discovery, many experts lowered their guard. Mm. And it took 40 years to prove that it was, in fact, actually fake. <laughs> yeah, it was the little Halloween spirit sticker still on the side that convinced them. <laughs> right. <laughs> Every now, time they waved their hand in front of its face, it would go, <laughs> <laughs> They now believe they know who perpetrated the hoax, a man named Charles Dawson, who was so desperate to become a fellow of the Royal Society that he just lied his way in. You know, mm-hmm. his name was so close to Darwin, he felt he was owed. Mm-hmm. Right, right. And he died in 1916, so he didn't live long enough to enjoy either the fruits of his lies or see any <laughs> punishment of mm. it either, right? So the article goes on to list a few other fraudsters that were caught, both from the past and rather recently. The main point here is that science can only work if it can be sure that the information it's presented with is correct. But that changes all the time. Yeah, well, and there's two halves to it. There's the original person who's deliberately either misinterpreting or creating evidence entirely. But then there's the other half of people who want it to be true. And you have to have that second group. If somebody just busts Mm -hmm. out with like, here, I have proof of a thing that no one likes, it's not going to go anywhere. (laughs) The only frauds that go places are things that people want to be true. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of on everybody to start examining, like, is this really something that I like as opposed to something I've actually seen the evidence for? 
Right. And for me, too, it's also about vetting sources, going mm-hmm. to the papers, seeing the study, seeing how many people were involved in the study. And most importantly, see who funded the study. Mm-hmm. Like what a study on the benefit of leaving your trash cans open conducted by the Association of American Raccoons. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Very suspicious. Uh, Very (laughs) suspicious on that. But don't throw it all out, right? We Again, science is ever evolving, but it's also somewhat self-correcting in time. Yeah. It's just a question of how long do we have to wait? And do we get a missing link between raccoons and humans? And in the meantime, (laughs) (laughs) the piltdown raccoon skull is like, oh, man, there. (laughs) All right. Well, that is all we have time for today. We're so glad you've joined us. Some of the articles we did not have time to get to today include Is Earth in danger if Beetlejuice goes supernova? What hunter-gatherers demonstrate about work and satisfaction? And yes, everything in physics is completely made up. So all that and more, plus everything we talked about today, can be found on damninteresting.com. If you like our podcast and want to support us, you can do so at patreon.com slash damninterestingweek. In the meantime, my name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Weisper Chen. I'm Bradley Calhoun. And we hope you have a Damn interesting week. Bye-bye.